Hey guys, Cable here, and this week's podcast is proudly brought to you by Pyro Putty. This is a product that uh, I'm very excited about as far as reinventing the wheel when it comes to fire starting technology. You can get Pyro Putty wet, it's still going to light. You can attach it to a wet log, it's going to burn long enough to start a fire on that wet wood. So when it comes to boosting morale in the backcountry, what, what is better than a a warm fire, right? There's nothing. You get home from a long day, back to camp. You've been chasing elk through the mountains or mule deer or whatever for you know, from sunup to sundown. You're cold and you're wet, and you can't get a fire started. Not because you don't have a fire starter, but because that fire starter doesn't do the job. Well, Pyro Putty does, and you can find it at pyroputty.com. It's a size of about a can of dip. That's all it is. And inside that can of dip, you got a seven-hour burn time. You put a, a piece the size of a nickel on a stick, and it's going to burn for 8 to 10 minutes. It's Pyro Putty. You need it in your backcountry kit. It's going to boost morale. Could save your life. You never know. Uh, but you can find it at pyroputty.com. Granddaddy's gone. Just an old double barrel 12. Stock is cracked and kicks like hell. Wouldn't mean what it means to me to no one. I can still hear his voice when I put it to my shoulder. It comes like a woman, son. It's all how you hold her. Taught me a whole lot more than I Good morning, good morning, good morning. That is our very own Aaron Lewis, Granddaddy's Gun, kicking things off for us on the Lone Star Outdoor Show powered. By Dallas Safari Club, thanks to Lone Star Beer and Hoff Power Polaris as well. A long time presenting sponsors. I'm Cable Smith. Thank you so much for being here as we are talking hunting, fishing, the great outdoors, and all that implies. And there's no place I'd rather be, to be honest, than doing exactly that with you guys and gals. Uh, so thanks for being here. We've got a great show lined up for you today, and I'll tell you about it in just a second. But man, um, I'm really excited because. This weekend, actually tomorrow, I'm going noodling for the first time. And I think I even mentioned last week how this is kind of the, the doldrums of summer, the dog days of summer, as there's really not a lot going on. Most of the game fish species have spawned out already. Um, and so for me, it's, you know, it's a time to hunt hogs, maybe exotics, and take the kids fishing. The bluegill are spawning. Uh, and then the catfish, there's still some that are in the shallows, and it's noodling season. And so... Um, check back in next week for my first-hand account of getting bit by a monster catfish and not a snapping turtle. That's, I guess, my biggest fear. And I know it doesn't happen very often, but uh, you do see those old-time noodlers who are missing a finger or two because a snapping turtle decided they want to make a snap out of that digit. So hopefully that won't be me, and I'll report back in the near future on if noodling is all that it's cracked up to be. It looks like a lot of fun. I will say that, but... Uh, I'll know soon enough. <laughs> uh, anyway, we've got a great show lined up for you today. We just got back, Aaron and I, my sweet wife, from uh, Guns and Guitars 5 down at Coons Canyon Ranch. Lots of nice axis deer, a couple oryx, and even a couple mouflon sheep were taken by the hunters there. And then we had nightly concerts with Max Dalling, his lovely bride Heather on the fiddle, and another one of my favorite singer-songwriters, Mark David Manders, who is a hoot and I believe was up skinning rabbits until the sun came up one of those nights. Uh, so, anyway, um, Aaron will join me here momentarily because we came into contact with a species, a poisonous species that you normally don't think about 
one that is very small, and to be honest with you, one that I've, I've never seen in the wild. Uh, but it was a pretty dicey moment there while we were out spotlighting rabbits at, oh gosh, it was probably 3 o'clock in the morning. Uh, so she'll be here to recount that, and we'll talk about her annual varmint hunting experience. Uh, she's just not interested in, in hunting herself, likes to eat what I shoot, and enjoys being in the outdoors, but as far as being a stone-cold killer, that is not her forte, but uh, it was a rodeo, and I'm, <laughs> I'm excited to have her jump on here against her will. She doesn't like when I put the microphone in her face, but we're going to do it anyway. Uh, so that's coming up, and then we will spend a couple segments with Ryan Gill, Primitive Weapons Authority and Primitive Hunter. Ryan actually makes all of his own weapons by hand, from the napping of the, the flint to the arrow shaft and spear shaft. He does it 100% the way that it was done thousands of years ago. And it is, uh, it's an inspiration, and it's, I mean, it's difficult as hell. You are basically turning your nose up at modern weapons because you want to make things more difficult, and I respect that. Uh, but we will get into how he manufactures those weapons, and then the Atlatl, which is like 10,000-year-old technology. Um, think a spear being launched by a wooden extension. It's pretty incredible. And so uh, he recently did a bison hunt with an atlatl, uh, which I find to be very fascinating from both a, a degree of difficulty and then from a historical point as well. Uh, so Ryan will be here basically for the duration of the show, and we'll dive headfirst into primitive stone point style weapons coming up in just a little while. So that's what's on the docket for today. Going to be a good one. Guarantee you that. A couple other things. Don't forget that our photo of the year contest is going on right now. This month's prize for July, I've got a Vortex Ranger 1800 Rangefinder MSRP $499. And we're going to give it away to this month's winner. So you know what to do. Email your best hunting, fishing, outdoor photo to Lone Star Outdoors Show at gmail.com. Better yet, post it on my Facebook page or use that hashtag LSOS Photo Contest on Instagram and we'll get you entered. And then our 12 monthly winners will square off at the end of 2019 for a chance to hunt trophy axis deer or black buck with me down at Coons Canyon Ranch. Uh, with that being said, let's do a quick giveaway. I've got another. Well, let's do this with dove season right around the corner. How about some Kent Diamond Dove? Uh, this is seven shot. I've got a box of 12 gauge and a box of 20 gauge. And we'll give away both boxes plus a Kent cartridge camo cap to today's winner. Just email the word wing shooting. That's wing shooting to Lone Star Outdoor Show at gmail.com. And you'll be entered to win today's prize pack from Kent Cartridge. Uh, we'll take a quick break, come back, and my better half joins us in studio right here on the Lone Star Outdoors Show. I cut me a cane pole I'm going catfish fishing I'm going catfish fishing 
Hey y'all, spring is here, and that means a lot of things, but specifically, your lawn is about to become your own worst nightmare. That's why I use JC's Landscaping. They do everything from lawn and landscape maintenance to fertilization and weed control. New premium sod installations. Hey, you need a French drain? I had to have them put in a French drain a couple years ago. They do that too. Landscaping updates, makeovers, stone borders, patios, and much more. Serving the North Dallas and surrounding areas, you can find them at jclandscapingllc.com and tell them Cable sent you. Back to the Lone Star Outdoor Show. New stuff there from Jesse Rassman. Perfect, which uh, is fitting because our next guest, in my eyes, is always perfect. Uh, my sweet wife, Erin, will be here in studio momentarily. And we'll get into one of those creepy, crawly, poisonous things that you never want to have try to sneak up your dress. Uh, but that's what happened to E. Last weekend at Guns and Guitars while we were out varmint hunting, and we'll discuss next. But first, this segment is proudly brought to you by our good friends, Rustic Reminders Taxidermy. Josh and Becky, they've been taking care of me for, oh God, seven, eight, nine, I don't know. It's been a long time. Looking around the studio here, they've mounted everything in here. They do amazing work, and they deliver fast turnaround time. And shockingly enough for a taxidermist, um, they answer the phone when you call. Imagine that. It's Rustic Reminders Taxidermy. You can find them at grthenumber8mounts.com. Okay, well, my lovely bride of 10 years is here in studio with us. Uh, Begrudgingly, I might add, as she doesn't really like when I put the microphone in her face, but she's a team player. Erin, thanks for dropping by the studio, babe. Thank you. Which happens to be in your house. Yep. It's nice to have you here. Thanks. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So I wanted to have you on today to discuss well first of all your annual varmint hunt which occurred at uh, coons canyon ranch for guns and guitars five which is interesting to me because all year i i hound you to go hunting with me and you have no interest and then nope. we, go, we go hang out with friends and you're like oh yeah i'll shoot a rabbit with them not with me i mean i don't want to shoot any animals it's more i like to just go and watch that part of it yeah well, so we, we went on a hog hunt on the second night, and that was a total bust. And how, You how, put me in a blind that had at least a thousand spiders. Yeah, you could say that blind. And other, other bugs flying around. And then we the, sat the, there for <laughs> 20, 30, 45 minutes, and the feeder didn't go off. Yes, yes. And we saw no animals. They need to upgrade to an all-seasons feeder for sure. That, uh, And then I didn't have any cell service, so I was pretty annoyed. But we got to go on a nice nature hike. and We did. Walk by like the creepiest thing in the Texas Hill Country. And this one ranch, uh, it was like they had some old taxidermy bobcats that were on the sides of each gate. And they're so... That had been eaten by something. Well, just decomposed. They Literally, we're taxidermied, and, and then all that's left is kind of part of the hair and then just the form in the eyes. It was very off-putting. Like, I thought banjos the were going to start were, were not even there. The <laughs> eyes were just holes in the yeah. form. Um, 
but so that so we got off to a rough start. But you told me you didn't even want to shoot a pig anyway. So I didn't. no, I was not interested in shooting a pig. Boy, I don't want to smell the pig. I don't want to see the pig. But so the next night uh, we go out for some spotlighting. And for anyone that hasn't gone spotlighting in a while, um, that's a, that's as much fun as you can have. Really it takes me back to to when I first started hunting and uh, going out with the spotlight and just shooting a bunch of jackrabbits and cottontails and. I enjoy a, I enjoy the um the thermal. The thermal. I like to look for the animals in the thermal because I don't find their eyes with the spotlight. Yeah. Well, last year you shot your first animal. I think you've gone duck hunting with me and actually shot at birds, but I don't think you ever killed any. No. Last year you shot a jackrabbit, like a Boone and Crockett jackrabbit. <laughs> and so <laughs> this year we went out looking uh, with our good friend Josh Gunther, my taxidermist of Rustic Reminders. Um, and you're like, I'm only going if Josh is driving. Well, okay. I mean, it was more of a safety concern. Some of the other people point. had been drinking a little yes. bit for sure. We knew that Josh hadn't been. And so uh, anyway, we hopped in his buggy and off we went looking for jackrabbits or cottontails or raccoons or porcupine, any of those varmints. Um, and we, we came across a cottontail and I handed you my over under and didn't tell you how bad it was going to kick. And I, I had the 12 gauge barrel on there and I probably should have put in the 20 gauge, uh, taken it out and put it on there. But anyway, I handed it to you and th- what, what happened after that? Well, I don't think I put the gun in the right spot on my shoulder. And when I shot, it kicked back and pretty much hit me in the jaw <laughs> in the side of the face. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, oh, man, this is the one time she's going to go hunting this year. And now she's had the thing recoil and smash her in the face. That wasn't really the worst part of that. Because then I took the gun. I was like, well, I'll shoot the damn rabbit. And uh, I'm, I'm, I think I had just shot the rabbit. And you had gotten back in the, in the uh, side-by-side. And uh-huh. I look over and Josh is saying something to you. What did he say? I, I got back in the ATV and put my hands down. And when I put them down, realized that there was a bug on my dress. Yeah. Um, and so I, I think I probably had a normal girl bug on dress reaction and kind of freaked out for a second. And, and she's yelled. wearing a dress, by the way, because we had, we had seen Max Stalling and Mark David Manders play a country concert earlier yeah. that evening. So everyone was all dolled It's my up. normal hunting attire. Right, right. Um, I had seen, I felt a bug on my dress. So I yelled, ooh, there's a bug. And Josh shined a flashlight over at me to try to help me see it because it's dark and three o'clock in the morning. And I went to like kind of brush it off. And I mean, I wouldn't say I'm a freaker out when it comes to <laughs> bugs. I didn't care for the thousand spiders in the in the blind, but, yeah, but I sat, sat in, there. in the blind. Yeah. Um, and so, anyway, Josh shined the flashlight over on me, and I and he kind of started to freak out a little bit and started yelling at me that I needed to be very still because there was a poisonous insect of some sort or bug on me i don't think he was yelling or he might have freaked you out more he was I, from my observation it was like i mean you Aaron, were you, you were nowhere near i was like 10 yards away but i could hear what he said he's like that's when the word poison like got my attention i'm like oh no what's going on over here 
And then, so he has you like slide out of the ATV. Yeah, he gets out of the ATV. He has me very slowly step out of the ATV while he's shining the flashlight on whatever this is that's crawling on my dress at that moment. And then he, I mean, I felt like it kind of got a little more serious when he picked up a stick to try (laughs) to get it off of my dress versus just flicking it or grabbing it with his hands. And I still don't know what it is because I could barely hear what's going on. All I knew is like something bad was happening and I figured it was like probably a scorpion or some kind of spider or rattlesnake or something. No rattlesnake. Jeez. Yeah. Well, so I, I, I get over there and Josh is trying to get with a stick, knock this thing off. I still don't know what it is. I finally get over there. It's a freaking centipede that's got to be eight inches long and like an inch wide. I've never even seen one in the wild like that. And as he's flicking it, it's crawling further and further up into my dress. (laughs) Which is, your dress is like this two-part thing. It's like a fold over. and And finally, Josh is like, Cable, I'm uncomfortable. This is your wife. Get that thing out of there. So but at that there. point, there are other people shining flashlights up my dress so that yeah. we can keep an eye <laughs> on the centipede. And and yes, luckily you came over and I don't rescued think me from everyone the saw your goodies. I hope but, not. But uh, yeah, so I finally got the stick and and got the uh, the centipede out of there and then stomped on it. We were all like, "Holy s, that really just happened." And I don't, I mean, I don't think anybody other than Josh had ever even seen one like that. I mean, I didn't really know much about centipedes and I wasn't, I mean, I felt a little relieved when I looked up on Google that, you know, most of the time smaller centipedes give you a little sting, like a bee sting. (laughs) But then I continued reading and it talked about the larger ones and how they're not always, but can be fatal at times. Yeah. Yeah. Well, at the very least, it was going to be the equivalent of like a scorpion or something. It wasn't going to yeah. be a comfortable deal for you. No. So, uh, but that was your, that was the, uh, about the, actually, no, we, we still, you're a trooper. I forgot. Like you still shot another rabbit. I couldn't believe you wanted to even shoot the gun again. Well, I tried one more time to shoot the gun. I did shoot a rabbit that time. I do have a bruise on my shoulder <laughs> or on my chest from the gun currently. Yeah. Um, but Next and I felt like I had things crawling on me for the rest of the evening for a couple of days, probably. Yeah. 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 Well, babe, I'm proud of you for sticking it out. You got that cotton tail. I think we got five total. And I uh, only shot one. I, well, I will look forward to doing it again next year on our, our annual uh, rabbit hunting trip. Me too. Maybe <laughs> next year I'll get an armadillo. Yeah, that'd be cool. Or a raccoon. All right. Well, I love you. I'm proud of you. Thanks. So there she goes, my better half, uh, the lovely Aaron Smith. And uh, Mark David Manders, our good friend and country recording artist, actually stayed up until six. Yeah, he might have seen the sun come up skinning those rabbits. Um, and he wanted to do it. He loves to do it. Just like he skinned out uh, the raccoon he shot last year on our spotlighting trip, which then Josh and Becky had tanned and gave to him at Guns and Guitars, which he didn't know about. Uh, so that was pretty cool. But, yeah, he was up skinning those rabbits. Uh, so they are in the freezer, and people want to talk about worms when it's hot. They can have worms. Um, I'm more concerned with the fleas usually. That's my first turn off. But uh, these seem to be perfectly fine, and we'll make a nice stew. Um, that segment of the presentation was proudly brought to you by the new Vortex Optics Razor HD 4000 rangefinder. 
Uh, you can find that bad boy at vortexoptics.com. Vortex, the force of optics. Well, let's take a break. When we come back, we'll be joined by primitive hunter Brian Gill. Some interesting stuff coming at you right here on the Lone Star Outdoors Show. Something new on the breeze. I turned to look and there you were. It was something to see. Slip your hand inside, my girl. Let a lock find its key. Hey y'all, Chris Letzinger, online sales manager at Cinnamon Creek Ranch here, reminding you we're not your typical archery club. We're a one-of-a-kind archery facility with indoor and outdoor ranges, full pro shop, and six different 3D courses. Cinnamon Creek was designed by hunters for hunters. Located in Roanoke, Texas, we have over 200 3D targets to hone your archery skills. Call 817-439-8998 or visit us at cinnamoncreekranch.com to visit our new online store. That's cinnamoncreekranch.com. Jimi Hendrix bringing us back on this 4th of July weekend. Hope it's been a good one for you and yours. Hopefully our U.S. women's soccer team will pull off a World Cup final victory this weekend. And uh, I'm still cheering for them despite Megan Rapinoe's blatant disrespect for the President of the United States. Look, I get it. You don't like Trump. I don't care. I still root for America. And if you want Trump to fail, then you want America to fail. I just don't get it. When Obama was in office, hey, I made no bones about it. I did not like his policies. I still don't, and I damn sure am glad Hillary wasn't elected because that would have been even worse. But you know what? When he was elected and, and then when he was reelected, I said, well, that's unfortunate, but um, he's our president, and I hope he does great things for this country. It's Mind-blowing how twisted the liberal media is to the degree these days where it's acceptable for them to say these god-awful things about our president, kneel for the national anthem, and Colin Kaepernick, you're in my crosshairs as well uh, for making Nike pull a patriotic shoe off of the shelves because it had an American flag on it. And the American flag that you find offensive it was Betsy Ross's original 13-state design. And I'm sorry that a piece of history offends the guy so much in a country that has made him a multimillionaire, first from being an athlete and now as a spokesperson essentially against America. Mind-blowing. Uh, it's I, It makes my head want to explode. That being said, I still don't hate the guy and I don't hate, hate Megan Rapinoe and I hope the women stomp the crap out of whoever it is they're playing in the final. Go America. Happy birthday. Now, stepping off of the pedestal, 
let's uh, shift gears here <laughs> and talk some primitive hunting and weapons with professional primitive hunter and uh, weapons maker Ryan Gill of Hunt Primitive. Uh, this segment, by the way, proudly brought to you by Dallas Safari Club, the worldwide leader in big game conservation. We'd love to have you check us out. Uh, it's a group of folks who are passionate about education, hunters' rights, and conservation. To do so, head on over to biggame.org. And uh, without further ado, uh, let's bring him on right now, uh, Ryan Gill of Hunt Primitive. Thanks for jumping on, man. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. I've been following along on, on your adventures. But before we get into all that, I want to know about you. Uh, how and why did you embrace primitive hunting and, and everything that encompasses that from making the weapons, the clothing, and then in, incorporating these ancient techniques into your uh, hunting adventures? Uh, well, when I was really young, uh, my dad used to take me to the traditional bow hunters of Florida archery shoot, and that's just the traditional bows only. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like a yearling gathering, and uh, they have a primitive class, and I was shot traditional. I kind of grew up shooting a Shakespeare a little 35-pound recurve. It, it, my draw was probably like 18 pounds, so I had to pick a good solid gas, and he shot bear recurve. But uh, every time that we would go, or every year that we would go, I would watch these primitive guys walking around with these, you know, clearly kind of gnarly sticks that they were shooting is how I kind of looked at it in my head. And I was like, I just, that's what I want to shoot because that to me was so cool. And I don't have any idea why I've always gravitated more towards, you know, organic equipment, you know, Mm -hmm. wood bows and cane or wood arrows and stone points, but I just always have, it's always nagged at me. So anytime we'd ever go to a show and there'd be arrowheads there, you know, like the little three for $2 little buckets, you know, the stuff that's made in India. I was always having to grab some of those things and going home and trying to put them on the end of little dog fennel arrows and, and out shooting at anything that I could uh, launch one at. Hmm. And then, of course, as I got older, I kind of got away from that a little bit and got more into hunting with the modern stuff, mostly because, uh, especially when you're kind of that age, you, you don't have the strength to draw a traditional bow. And so, and the more that I hunted with that stuff and the more I began to, to find success and bring down animals, I started looking for more and more challenge. And finally got to a point where I was like, I, I really want to go back to that uh, that traditional or primitive side of things. And of course, I skipped over a, a big bunch of that story. But, you know, I, I had built my first primitive bow, real wooden bow, with hand tools at about age 13. And I shot that for, for quite a while hmm. um, before I transitioned into more of the modern stuff, compounds and guns and that kind of thing. Um, but that's what I ended up going back to was that bow. And it really wasn't heavy enough to hunt with. So I was like, well, I'm going to make another one. And so I got another piece of wood. What kind of wood do you use for when you, you know, handcrafting a bow? Mostly Osage orange. That's what, uh, that's what the customer base really, really wants. And really it's kind of the king of bow woods. So that's what I pretty much shoot for. Um, but up, there's lots of other different woods, hickory, elm, black locust. The list really goes on and on and on. But uh, so, yeah, I ended up just building another bow and decided that's it. I'm going to I'm gonna hunt with this and see if I can take a deer. And, and in my mind, I was like, if I could just take one deer with this, I'll quit. But it's like opening up a bag of potato chips. You take one, and, hmm. and that's not enough. You got to go back and get some more. And next thing you know, it's the only thing you hunt with. Yeah. 
Well, so and when did the the napping element of, and I don't know if 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 all of the weapon points are, are made out of flint, but when did you start, you know, making your own spearheads, arrowheads? Well, the flint lapping kind of, I had that interest at the same time as the primitive bows, uh-huh. but it just didn't take off. Like, I had shot a couple scrap pieces of rock, but I didn't have the strength to really break it, nor did I have the technique down to break it. And uh, so that all kind of went by the wayside. But after I got my very first deer kill with a primitive bow, and that was with a commercial glue on broadhead, I was like, now, now I really want to try to get one with a stone point. And that's when I began... Uh, napping and breaking rock and trying to produce something that, that looked like a good hunting point. And that's, that's a, a big, long journey all, all within itself. I'm sure a frustrating one. Just, I mean, I've watched a lot of your videos where you're, you're doing it, and I, I'm sure that, uh, maybe not at this point, but I imagine a lot of those got ruined in the process. <laughs> yeah, there's a huge learning curve, and I, and I kind of mentor a lot of beginning nappers and I always tell them, you have to go through a, really a couple of years. Everybody you know, learns at a different rate, but you're going to spend a few years of just breaking a lot of premium rock. And whether you're out looking for it yourself or you're buying the rock, there's, there's such a learning curve that you can't even learn unless you're actually breaking it and destroying it. So you mm-hmm. have to destroy good rock to know where you made a mistake. Kind of like playing a video game, which I don't do much of. Me neither. Uh, but I have lightly in the past <laughs> so it's the only thing i can equate it to but it's like you know how you go uh every you know you'd play like a level of a game and you'd get a little bit further and then you kind of learned a little something and the next time you you know you die and you go back to the beginning and then you play a little bit further and you know your mind kind of learns what to do and what not to do the further you get through that level and that's very much like napping it's like you have to go through and, and uh, get to where you're almost there and then break it and then be like, okay, now I know not to do that. And mm. then you can go back through and you have to start completely over from scratch. And, and then obviously it's not like a weekend adventure. It's, it's like, a, for me, I've been napping almost, well, more than 10 years now. I like to say it's been 10 years, but it really I think it's 11 or 12. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I saw something cool on this, this bison video, which we're going to talk about um, in detail here in a little bit. But you actually use like a, to get the serration, I guess to make it, you know, jacket, you're using like the, the tip of a white-tailed deer tine? Yeah. Yep. That's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, that's all um, what they, what we call aboriginal tools, you know, or indigenous tools. So using deer antler for punches and flakers and uh, billets and stuff like that. And then, of course, then your little round uh, stones, you know, we call hammer stones. What is exactly is your brand Hunt Primitive as far as is it, is it like a hunting-only uh, production or or is there a historical or archaeological aspect of your brand? Yeah, uh, it's it's pretty much ever evolving, so I can't ever sit still on it. I have to constantly be finding something new to dip uh, my hand into. But uh, it started out as pretty much just making hunting gear, hunting gear, and then it's evolved over time to, you know, now I'm I've accumulated so many kills over the last you know ten eleven years that I started to realize I had a lot of data collected that I didn't really know what to do with. And so mm-hmm. I started kind of doing some work with some archaeologists that I met, one in particular, Morgan Smith, uh, really kind of took a shine to what I was doing. He's like, you know, you have some really interesting stuff here that I think you can probably in- implement and compare to archaeologically um, collected data. 
And so I'm like, yeah, I'll give you everything that I can, you know, to kind of help that. And so that kind of opened the door for, you know, extending Hunt Primitive right into really its own archaeology division where we're doing so much with universities now and uh, multiple, not just uh, Texas A&M and now uh, UTC and Florida State and hopefully many more in the future. But uh, I think they're starting to realize that working with people like me has some advantages. You know, I don't have the schooling that they do on the artifacts, but I've got the hands-on build it and go kill stuff with it. Mm-hmm. One other fascinating thing that uh, stood out when I, when I was watching this video, which it's, it goes all, all the way into the history of a weapon we're going to talk about, which is the atlatl. Um, but also for the average guy out there who picks up, let's just say a little arrowhead, like I, uh, the only one I've ever found was so cool. I picked it up at 11,000 feet in New Mexico and I picked it up maybe 500 yards from where I killed my first bull elk on the same day oh, with an arrow. Very cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, and I've never, you know, I, I'm not an arrowhead hunter. If I mm-hmm. see something that looks cool, I'll pick it up. But no, this was very, it was a small, it was made out, it was a black granite. Like I would think it's probably a bird point, maybe okay. um, small game point. I mean, it's pretty small. Um, yeah. But going back to what I was saying is at, at some point in time, that was likely part of a spear or a knife or something um, because once, you know, spear wears out, that's not the end of its lifespan as a weapon. And that was cool how you kind of repurposed uh, these points over time. Yeah, for sure. And actually what you're, you know, talking about as far as like a bird point, and this is a, a really interesting fact about it, that really these tiny little things that people call bird points are actually true arrowheads. In fact, I'm working on a new documentary, and it won't be quite as big as the bison film, but the, a new documentary about the uh, the real context of the bow and arrow in which I'm talking about uh, the different size points that are used. Uh-huh. And those little ones are actually big game points. Oh, wow. And uh, But they're for a bow and arrow. But actually, you know, when when the, the spear or the atlatl kind of phased itself out, you know, in different areas, you know, between two and 3,000 years ago, and they continue to use it, but that's when the, the bow and arrow picked up, and that's when you start seeing all these little, you know, quote-unquote bird points kind of show up on the scene, you know, it's just because uh, now they're implementing them on arrows as well. So actually the majority of points that people find, like on the ground, are actually arrow points because they're, you know, really you only, we're only looking at somewhere between one and 3,000 years worth of arrow points mm-hmm. compared to 14,000 years of atlatl points. Wow. Okay. And so the the atlatl is actually not it's not like North American technology as far as you know a historical look at when these weapons showed up on our planet. Right. Yeah. It wasn't it wasn't uh, invented here. Um, there's some evidence that they feel is really compelling that, that the atlatl was used almost to guarantee about twenty thousand years ago in modern day Europe, but there are people that think that it's just because of other things that's a little bit above my head, that it goes back to clearly 40,000 years ago. Um, But uh, as people kind of migrated around, you know, they traveled with them and people, you know, do a, seems to be a scientific um, agreement right now that people for the most part have migrated to America, you know, between 14,500 to maybe 15,000 years ago. And, of course, that date kind of gets pushed back 
every once in a while when somebody finds something that's a little extra old. But you know, those, you know, the original peoples that came here were so few and far between. We haven't found everything that there is mm. to find. Um, but yeah, the, it, it's definitely thought by archaeologists and historians, and now also myself, being the fact that I've implemented this technology and seeing kind of how it travels around and how it's evolved in different places around the planet from um, from Europe to Asia to Australia, um, that the Atlatl technology that's been carried around for quite some time. Hmm. Well, so tell us what the Atlatl is, essentially. it's uh, it's I think it's something that some of our listeners probably have no idea, you know, I hope that it's getting more popular enough that more people are starting to recognize what it is. Uh, but it's essentially a stick that throws another stick. Uh-huh. And that's the basic way that I can grab people's attention to say, hey, look, this is it's not incredibly complicated, but it kind of is. It's not as complicated, say, as a bow and arrow, but essentially you're using a stick that's an extension of your arm. And by using that extension of your arm, you can get more tips. Just like anything, if you hold a stick out, uh, any sort of stick in your yard and you swing it, the, the tip of that stick is actually going faster than your hand is. Just simply because it has to cover more ground, but it's being accelerated by your hand. Mm-hmm. And that's essentially what we're doing with the atlatl is we're using that extension of our arm, hooking it into the back of the spear, which is actually going to be the place that you can generate the most force and the most momentum as opposed to like a handheld spear that you hold in the middle like a javelin and you throw it. Mm-hmm. If you get behind that, that's where you can put all the force facing directly towards your target and compound that with that extension of your arm and uh, you can get some, some pretty powerful numbers compared to just a handheld spear. So, you know, where if I give somebody, a lot of times what I do, if I put on a uh, like a seminar or a class or something, either at a university or a different show. It's, I like to try to find about the biggest guy I can and hand him an atletal dart or spear all by, itself, all by itself and say, here, now you throw this as far as you can, and they throw it out there, and, and uh, you know, it usually goes 40 or 50 yards or so with a big arc, and then I can grab onto the uh, spear that's just like it with the atletal thrower, and I can launch it, I mean, way off into the distance and i haven't even measured the full distance but it's, huh. you know well over 100 yards and the velocity and is going to be uh, you know significantly higher too oh absolutely yeah okay. so, i mean you're you know throwing something that's a lot heavier than an arrow and it's going it's not going as fast as an arrow but it's got the weight behind it so it carries the kinetic energy and momentum uh-huh okay fascinating stuff there um well, let's do this I want to I want to take a quick break and then I want to come back and talk about the atlatl and its place on this bison hunt and and why you decided to pursue that. So, sound good? Absolutely. Excellent. And that segment was brought to you by the new Pulsar Axion thermal monocular. If you haven't seen it, you need to check it out. Literally fits in your palm. It is the smallest monocular on the market and it comes with a smaller price tag than uh, what you're traditionally used to seeing as far as thermal optics go. Check it out. It's the Pulsar Axion, and you can find it at PulsarNV.com. We'll be right back with more from Hunt Primitive's Ryan Gill on the Lone Star Outdoors show. So I got my daddy's name stitched across my chest And now I can drop a man from about two clicks I wonder if he's proud of me yet. 
In the market for a compact track loader, then check out the Bobcat Advantage, where Bobcat track loaders squared off against other brands in a variety of tests and challenges. Whether you're looking for performance advantages, uptime protection, or quality design, Bobcat compact track loaders are the best-built machines in the industry. But don't take our word for it. Watch the videos at BobcatAdvantage.com or see Bobcat machines in person at Bobcat of Dallas and Louisville, Fort Worth, Cedar Hill, Longview, and now McKinney. Visit BobcatofDallas.com or call 469-586-0000. I'm Craig Boddington. I'd like to invite you to become a member of Dallas Safari Club, one of the world's leading hunting and conservation organizations. As a member, you'll receive Game Trails Magazine, a monthly newsletter, and invitations to our monthly meetings and special activities. Join Dallas Safari Club, an international organization based in Dallas, supporting hunting and conservation worldwide. For more information, call 800-9-GO-HUNT or visit our website at www.biggame.org. I've been a-hunting these woods since I was seven years old. This shotgun was my granddad's, now it's mine to hold. I ain't never hurt no one except a turkey each year. Come Sunday morning, Gable Smith, welcome everybody back to the Lone Star Outdoor Show, powered by Dallas Safari Club, thanks to Lone Star Beer. And Hoff Power Polaris as well. Hope y'all uh, drank a couple Lone Stars this 4th of July weekend. That was Austin Cunningham, Guns and Religion. Highly appropriate as we celebrate America's birthday, uh, largely based on those two things, religious freedom and the right to bear arms. And guess what? For all you anti-gun grabbing commies out there, when the British came to try to take away those liberties, we shot them with guns. <laughs> Imagine that, an armed militia of made up of citizens at the time, and, uh, and we still have that right today, thank God. Um, this segment of the show is proudly brought to you by Lone Star Beer, the national beer of Texas. Be sure to check out the new Lone Star 24-7, only 68 calories. And look, we all know that dad bods are, are in, they're the cool thing, which is great for guys like us, a little... Uh, beer belly, but we don't want to take it too far, right? So check it out. It's the Lone Star 24-7. Lone Star Beer, the national beer of Texas. Well, uh, let's go ahead and get back into it here with our friend Ryan Gill, a primitive bow hunter, and well, we'll call him a spear chucker because we're about to get into his atlatl hunt for American bison and this is certainly something off the beaten path. You know, we don't do a lot of reflection or study on how we got here as hunters on this show. Maybe we should do more because from a historical standpoint, I find this stuff absolutely fascinating. Uh, so thanks for sticking around, Ryan. I appreciate it. It's, it's definitely something that I'm passionate about. And I'm hoping, legitimately hoping to get more people interested because there's a lot of stigma that does follow uh, you know, spear hunting in general, mostly from just people that aren't exposed to it. They don't know what to expect. Well, and, and you know, people get offended by it for some stupid reason. Like, uh, I'm sure you're well aware of the whole Under Armour thing a couple of years ago when they kicked the Bomars yeah. off of their pro staff because he threw a javelin in college. So probably pretty experienced with throwing, a, you know, a spear type projectile. And he kills a black bear in Canada legally, not out of a tree stand, a spot and stock. So you add that, I give him more you know, more props for that. And next thing you know, there's this public outcry and, and Under Armour's dropping them uh, from their pro staff team, which I just thought was 
for someone to take legally take game and then be rewarded by um you know losing a sponsor it's just like tells you all you need to know about under armor yeah and that's but that's so common with the general public uh as a whole is people look at spear hunting or, or even hunting with stone projectiles right so i get this all the time and people are like well that's uh that's a brutal and a cruel way for animals to die if you shoot something with a stone point it's going to suffer for hours and that's that's coming from people that just have absolutely no idea what they're talking about in fact the majority of deer or pigs or anything that i shoot uh, i put a stone point through the heart and lungs of that animal and it's typically dead inside of 50 yards mm -hmm. and if it's not dead inside 50 yards it's dead inside of 60 yards they don't go far uh, it creates a massive amount of hemorrhage which kind of really circles right back to the uh to the even the modern spear hunting you know with these big giant blades i mean it, it offends people to look at it because stuff pours blood violently but that animal is dead so much faster than it is even with an arrow so well, that's the trade-off if you see yeah. blood pouring out violently then you made you made one hell of a shot <laughs> You know? yeah. That's yeah. what we should really be striving does. for. <laughs> yeah, but it's it's more emotionally triggering probably than it is factual. So yeah. you know their response is. Um, so yeah, that's the, uh, the 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 side of this that we see that you know spear hunting isn't really illegal in many places. So here in Florida, you know I'm allowed to hunt pigs on private land, pretty much only uh -huh. with an atlatl because it is considered a spear. Uh, it, with the exception of some like frogging and fishing where it's considered a gig, which is fine, but that's, mm -hmm. you know, kind of a different subject. But really the only state that it's legal to hunt with an atlatl currently is Missouri, maybe Nebraska, but don't hold me to it. I need to look into that a little bit mm -hmm. more because I think they might be on the fence, potentially even Iowa. But Alabama took spear hunting away, as did, um, you know, most of your Canadian, I don't know, what do we even call them, provinces? Mm -hmm. um, and I'm not and which again, just like the Bomar thing, that's uh, just yeah. that's just them buckling under public pressure, outcry yeah. of the the uh, anti-hunting community by and large. Because I don't, you know, I don't really think Under Armour gave a crap, to be honest with you. But once you yeah. have people signing petitions and and saying right. I'm not going to buy any more Under Armour products, you know, um, yeah. that's that's how that goes down. And yeah. and the same thing from politicians, they buckle under it as well. Uh, so, Absolutely. and it's sad because it's such a, it's such a small minority of people that create that create the biggest stink. Um, so yeah, it is, and that's and that's something that I'm really passionate about. And anybody that watches this this bison documentary, there's there's more of it at the end. We get through the hunt, get through some of the archaeology of it and why it's significant, and then I start talking about um, a lot of the legal aspects of it. You know, trying to anybody that's hung on that long, hopefully we can start changing some minds or people that are on the fence. Um, you know, advocating for spear hunting in general is something that I am, I'm very much for. And I'm not looking, I'm never looking for like a spear hunting season. I actually think that's a really bad idea because now you have a lot of people going out with no experience. They just want to be in the woods, which is not a mm -hmm. bad thing, but they're going to be taking something that they don't really practice with. Right. And then they're going to go out and be like, well, I just want to be on the be in the woods. You're describing me and my muzzle muzzle loader hunting uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. career. <laughs> but that's but, but that's, that's a lot easier than I mean, you know, I, I don't hunt muzzle yeah. loader hunt very often. I, if I put in and draw a tag, great. Then I'll I'll practice for a week or two, and and that's sufficient. Um, but that's what you just described. You put a you, you put a spear instead of a muzzle loader, and, and that's a bad combination. Right. Yeah. But so. if you but I also like to put it like this. Now, if you make the atlatl season coincide with archery season 
if you take you and me, I throw the outlet all the time. I'm passionate about it. Let's just say you have three weeks of archery season Mm -hmm. and I hand you, you know, your normal bow that you shoot or an atlatl and say, here, you can spend these three weeks. What do you want to hunt with? You're always going to go to your bow unless you somehow get to a point where you're like, I'm going to buckle down for like one, two, three years, and I'm going to master this atlatl because I'm really passionate about it. Mm -hmm. But nobody is going to give up their normal bow hunting season to pick up an atlatl to go hunt. So the idea that, oh, people are, you know, that are unexperienced are going to be out there wounding game like crazy, you know, that really that's just a poor excuse. Um, Well, and where the hell can you even get an atlatl? I mean, you obviously make them, and I I know you sell... uh you know, your your points and, and probably weapons as well to the general public that are interested, but it's not like, you know, Elite Archery's got an atlatl for sale. Yeah. So, I mean, that's but that's kind of normal, too, and, and we are starting to actually see that there is some commercialization of the atlatl that's starting to take place. It's actually a little bit of a sore subject for me because um, uh, I also see it as a good thing because if people buy a commercial atlatl, at least they're showing interest in it, um, which is going to help lean towards maybe getting it implemented in more states. So that's the pro side of the bad side of it. It rubs me wrong the, on the personal side, because I look at something that's, you know, a, a potentially a 20,000 year old uh, invention that has not seen hardly any evolution. Unlike the bow, like the bow has gone through so much evolution, which is relatively young. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but if it, the bow has gone from really primitive stuff to, you know, what the, uh, the Turks and the Mongolians and stuff have done with uh, these horn bows making recurves. And then it moved into where like the Howard Hill Fred bear era that started making, they started off with wood, but then they started making fiberglass laminated bows. And then we've graduated from those into compounds. And actually now we're kind of going backwards where a lot of people are starting to get more interested in the recurves, which is neat, but the atlatl hasn't seen that. So when people jump straight from like a really natural materials wood and cane or just wood on wood with stone or something set and then all of a sudden there's like now there's like carbon atlatls out there i'm just like it's so out of context for me it, like it hurts my heart <laughs> but i also get that not everybody's on the same mission that i'm on right right, right. but but you can absolutely buy atlatls you can go on my website and, and order them at any time i have starter sets and full complete hunting sets so it's there but yeah, like you're saying, it's not like the public is just rolling up to Walmart, picking up an atlatl and be like, "Cool, I'm gonna go hunt tomorrow." Right. You gotta right. pretty much dedicate yourself to it. Well, so let me ask you this: um, We talked about you said, uh, I think it was Osage is the the primary wood that you use for bow for for uh, primitive bows that you make. What what are the atlatl spears made out of? Whatever you can find that's straight. Uh-huh. Is basically what it comes down to. So, especially in the southeast or the you know the eastern United States, it's hardly even called the southeast because it's all the way up to Maryland. But river cane is probably the best stuff you can get. It's lighter, uh-huh. but you can get the weight simply just by making your spear longer. But in the case of say out west, uh, you might be using uh, red osier, which is dogwood essentially. Uh, it just depends on where you're from and what it's called. Uh-huh. Uh, sometimes it's not even long enough. You have to actually splice it together. Um, but any of these places that you go, you'll have different materials. So there's not really like, let's just say, uh, a dogwood spear isn't going to be any better than an arrowwood viburnum spear or a sparkleberry spear. Now I do actually look at cane, like cane's probably the best. And that's why I use it. And that's simply because it rebounds 
really fast. And for those that I'm sitting here talking about cane, most people probably don't even know what I'm really talking about, but that's a North American native species of bamboo. Hmm. And, uh, okay. uh, but that, that's going to make your best primitive arrows and actually cane darts or spears. And I would have, I never would have thought that because it seems like cane is, is hollow in the middle. And yeah. so you're losing weight there, but I guess, uh, logistically it's easier to aim it's easier to throw it flies straighter so it's, i mean it's a no-brainer for me i've done enough atlatl hunting where i'll choose a nine foot spear nine foot cane spear over a six foot wood spear any day well i guess it makes sense i mean because our whatever kind of arrow we're flinging out of our compound bows are all hollow so yeah yeah think about it yeah. that way yeah. um well so what made you decide to want to do a bison hunt and uh when do you think was the last time someone used an atlatl to hunt a bison in North America? Um, I know people have done some other atlatl hunts. I don't know anybody, certainly not publicized, that's actually done a bison hunt with an atlatl with a stone point. Mm -hmm. Most people will take like a, a dowel shaft as their spear, and then they put like a commercial glue-on broadhead on the other side. Okay. Um, but to go full Stone Age, nap a point, you know, kill a big game animal with that is very, very much few and far between. And so uh, before I even really talk about getting into the bison hunt, because I, I don't want somebody just to think listening to this going, guy just decided one day he's going to pick up an atlatl and go spear a bison. Like, this is <laughs> right. a great idea. Like, there's a huge learning curve. There's uh -huh. so much to this. Um, and I started off where when I decided that's it, I, I want the most challenged that I can have. I want to pick up the atlatl and, and learn to use it and start reverse engineering it. Uh, I immediately went to hunting pigs because that is what, what's legal here, which it's still incredibly difficult to get. You know, we're talking getting inside of 10 yards and then throwing a spear accurately into a pig. And mm -hmm. it sounds really easy right until you're like, here's a spear, go do it. Um, I mean, but, it looks really easy on your video, but we know that <laughs> it, it, obviously that, that probably took years. Yeah. It might have taken seasons just to get one. Yeah. And now, you know, now we're to the point where I, I've done it enough. I can go out and in the season I can kill a few things. In fact, I really only started killing stuff with an atlatl like, uh, I don't know, two years ago. Yeah. Uh -huh. About two years, two years ago, probably almost the date. And I've killed, um, I don't know, three pigs, of course, that can ram two alligators and a bison. And then of course, lots of like little small game and stuff. So, I mean, I'm not, I don't know everything there is to know about an atlatl, but I've still probably killed more with it than most people. Right. But yeah, so I started with... Well, you're the only person I know that's killed anything with an atlatl, so... <laughs> <laughs> and and probably, definitely so, with, with a stone point on the end. That's probably the the, rear, the real rarest part of that it. That you napped it. yourself, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. So full indigenous on it. Mm. Um, but yeah, so like I started collecting a lot of data, a lot of practice, you know, pig hunting, that kind of thing. And then um, I'm very calculated in, in the things that I plan. So even when I went and did the sheep hunt, which of course, and, and this is another little fact too, anything that's inside of a high fence, you're allowed to hunt with an atlatl because they obviously run by their own game laws. But oh, yeah. high fences in general typically come with a lot of stigma. Um, but if you ever try to get on the ground with these animals inside of a high fence that are hunted all the time, and you're like, here's a spear, I'm going to go shoot something, it is way harder than it would actually be in the wild because these animals are, like I said, hunted constantly. So they're not. It's not like it's in a petting zoo. But unfortunately, oh, I've hunted I mean, high fences plenty of times, and I know all the listeners know that. I don't. I don't care yeah. high fence, low fence, no fence. Hunt your way. 
And just because it's behind a high fence doesn't make it unethical. But I think you and I would both agree, Ryan, that uh, a high fence trophy is, for me personally, and probably for you, it has less significance um, as like, you know, my biggest yeah. buck, for example, I killed in a high fence. Someone comes in the studio and they look at that thing and they're blown away. Uh, but I want to tell them about my 10 point I shot in Oklahoma at my deer lease, you know? <laughs> right. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's normal. And, you know, there's some people that, that everybody's, you know, different strokes for different folks. And there's somebody that would say that the size of the antlers is the most important thing. And there's nothing wrong with that. If that's what gets them jacked up, I think you, you and I are going to be more on the same page where we're looking for the experience of the hunt. Mm-hmm. Um, but I went and did basically this Corsican Ram hunt, which, uh, you know, they'll let you get 40, 50 yards from them pretty much no problem. So really, if you're shooting a compound bow, it's, it's you know, and if you can shoot 50 yards, you can kind of just walk around, wait, pick out the one you want and shoot it. But but to really try to get like, hey, we're going to get 10 yards within this animal uh, to run a spear through it. Now, that, now that's, a, that's a lot harder of a game. Um, but I kind of did that because I already had the bison thing in the back of my mind. And I feel like from my experience watching sheep the day these little herded sheep act a lot like bison do, but on a smaller scale on a smaller package. So I kind of mm-hmm. wanted to get some experience through the sheep hunt, um, before I went to do the bison hunt. And then, uh, then I started thinking, man, what's probably one of the toughest things to probably penetrate. Uh, so I can kind of test it out, do another hunt. And I thought, man, if I could penetrate through like the back of an alligator, that would be like, if I could penetrate that, I could easily pierce the bison. Right. So, uh, then I went and like scheduled on and drew my uh, Florida tags for hunting the alligator. And then I'm out there, you know, basically spear atlatling uh, alligators out of a canoe. Um, so, and then once I saw that I could get through those, then it was like, now I feel really good. I can go do this bison hunt because I wanted to show you know, and always advocating for the atlatl, I want to show the efficiency of the weapon. A lot of times people will see you throw an atlatl and, you're, and they're like, that couldn't kill anything because it's going so slow, which a lot of times target atlatl throwers throw very light. They're not really so concerned about delivering a spear to kill an animal. They're just lobbing something to a target. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, there you have kind of some more uh, incorrect data being shared with the public at some of these, you know, prehistoric gatherings and nappings and stuff like that with the with the only target throwers the people that never hunt with it do you Um, let me ask you this do you ever record your fps out of your when you're throwing that lateral is that something do you are we ever worried about i gotta get i gotta get it going this fast um a lot of compound guys are like always worried about their fps and a lot of times they're they're measuring that i have and um and actually i've got two different chronographs and i've I have all, all but destroyed one and then partially destroyed another because <laughs> the spears paradox when you throw them. Uh-huh. And so to throw through the little guides of a chronograph is, is pretty much impossible. I've had spears go every direction because they kind of hit and glance off the little wires mm. that come off of them. Mm-hmm. So I was more so curious for the data purposes. Like I could look at it and, and do penetration tests on dead animals and, pen, and penetration tests on solid uh, foam targets comparing to arrows that I have uh, shot, that I've shot off those that I've killed animals with. So mm-hmm. like I can see the penetration and if it's more then I know it's going to be fine to kill a pig. So when it came to trying to get FPS numbers, uh, it's, it's been basically a giant fail mm-hmm. uh, up until recently, which is kind of foolish of me. I should have had, I should have done the math on it before getting on here because uh, I should have 
foreseen that you were going to ask, but actually I went to Texas A&M University a couple months ago and they recorded my spear throw with a really, really um, high frame rate camera. It shoots like, I think up to 2,500 frames per second, but they were shooting at, I think, either 1,500 or 2,000. Hmm. And uh, so then, of course, they can measure the uh, the velocity of that and then, of course, put that with the weight. And, and I actually have the numbers. I just haven't crunched it yet. I've been so busy with everything else. It's just kind of been like, yeah, whatever. I mean, it would take me five minutes to put it into a computer program to tell me what it's, <laughs> what it's putting right, out. Right, right. Well, no big deal on there. I'm just curious if you ever were, uh, you know, were, were ever interested in that. Like, because primitive to me doesn't mean we're looking for FPS, but it, it would be something interesting right. to know. So. Yeah, and that, and that is important stuff. I mean, because it is a data point that you can share with other people. And so, uh, yeah, but you are, I mean, I'm looking at you what, when you're going on this bison hunt and you're wearing the, the skins of animals you probably killed and uh, yeah. certainly are not embracing most of the modern technology. And, <laughs> and obviously those, those early North Americans didn't, didn't even know what FPS was, you know? Right. <laughs> so. Well, I think the important thing is to, to uh, build it organically, if you will, or, you know, without any of that, a modern influence mm-hmm. and then once you're successful with it you go and measure it and then provide that data to the places that can utilize it be it universities mm-hmm. or so instead of saying well i'm going to use a number that i don't know even know what it means or compare it even to a compound bow or a traditional bow or what have you and then say well i need to put up the same numbers that's not really what i want to do i want to build it to where i'm confident to work test it on smaller animals mark work my way up you know now i've gotten uh two spears through both sides of a of a bison that both lodged in the opposite shoulder, um, and now I can take that and say it works. So now let's you know when we went to the university, like I said, they measured all that, so they're going to benefit from that. And actually, they're going to be calibrating an automatic firing machine so they can test um, on bones hmm. to see the the impact. And so they figured, hey, he's like the only one that's gone out and actually killed a a bison with a true stone age atlatl. So he's probably a good person to, you know, measure all that off of or the closest thing to have. So logistically, when you start planning the bison hunt, um, where, where did you end up doing it? I mean, there was snow on the ground, big hardwood. So, I mean, it looked like the, like Midwest to me, but I have no idea. Yeah, it was in Missouri. Okay. Um, so we went and did it there. We had about legally, again, it has to be done in a high fence. Um, especially for a bison. I mean, shoot, where are you ever going to show up and just kill a bison, right? But I uh, didn't want to go to like a 300-acre place. We ended up finding a place that's, uh, I would say it's probably three to four square miles. Oh, wow. I'd say it's five square miles, but it's, it's not. If you drew a square around it, it would be, but it's big. Like, you know, when we uh, we kind of toured around, they're like, well, you know, first get there, they're like, well, we'll get in the truck and we'll tour you around just to, so you can see. I mean, obviously, you're not going to run out of your boundaries because there is a fence there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when they show you the amount of land that you can travel on foot, and it's not flat land, it's it's some pretty steep areas, you know, quite honestly. A lot of it's wooded, a lot of it's pasture. It's a good mix. Uh, I was like, I'm sold. I mean, this is as close to free range as you can honestly get. Like, you can lose bison in this place. Oh, yeah. And also looking we, for them. Absolutely. Well, when I went to South Africa two weeks ago, uh, the, the main... Lodge is a, is a thirty thousand acre high fence, and they don't. To be honest with you, the the fence is there to keep the animals off of the highway and from interacting with um, with livestock. 
because it's a liability yeah. thing. It's it's you know more to keep poachers out than it is to keep animals in. So and you'll never see that fence except for when you go in and when you go out. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. That's pretty much it. So I mean, that's, uh, when I first publicized, you know, that I had killed the bison and and done that, I had had some people that immediately jumped on, going, "It's in a high fence and it's not ethical and you shouldn't do this." And it's like, dude, if you were there. <laughs> We came so close to not getting it done. Um, so difficult to do. You think that a bison's like a cow that you're just going to walk up to, which is funny enough in itself. Have you ever went out on a on a cattle ranch and tried to get you know inside 20 yards of cows? Like a barnyard cow that's like hand fed and stuff. A milk cow is a different story. But you could actually like go to a cattle ranch and try to walk 20 yards. Them cows run off. <laughs> oh yeah, and no, I've hunted on a. I've actually yeah. hunted turkey on a place where they had bison, but I didn't want to have anything to do with them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that's that's a real concern too that we went into was were these bison actually going to come attack us? Um, so we had to be a little bit cautious, but we did kind of find out that you know because they're they're kind of hunted on the regular, they they just for the most part want you to leave them alone. Yeah. So they don't just like a deer sees you and just runs off, right? He's gone. But like the bison's like, mm, you're 50 yards, I'm going to let you do it. But you get a little bit closer, and then they all stand up, and then they're like, now nah, we're going to move on. I think there's also safety in numbers, you know, the, a lot of these herd animals oh, yeah. allow you to get closer because they're in a herd. And uh, if you walk up on a single animal, then that's probably, that's usually not the reality. They're gone. Yeah. Well, we tried that too, actually. We we found one that was by itself. And I was like, we'll try to get on this. And I mean, that that thing was gone in a second. And we tried our best to get anywhere close to it. Hmm. And yeah, I mean, there was no doing it. It was more spooky by itself than it was in the mm-hmm. herd, which again, there the it is though. It's herd mentality. It's, they feel safer together. But then when the leader of the herd decides, hey, it's time to move on, which really it's going to be the matriarch. It's the you know the oldest cow is like, hey, we're we're out of here now. Then everybody else kind of follows suit. Mm-hmm. But uh, I mean, it's definitely easier said than done. But even going into this, it wasn't actually about the hunt. It was more about um, the atlatl and how that would perform on an animal the size of a bison. Because at the end of the day, that's why we did a bison hunt, was we wanted the biggest thing in North America that we could really get our hands on legally to kill with an atlatl. Well, yeah, and anyone that's bitching about you taking it in a high fence, there's no place where you could legally go and kill a bison with an atlatl anyway. No, no. So, maybe maybe on tribal land or something. Uh-huh. Um, but I don't have really any connections with that. And I'm kind of hoping that maybe that is something we kind of open some doors in the future hmm. uh, to where maybe we can do some more free range type stuff. If we can't get the atlatl, you know, kind of more normalized in North America and in Canada. Uh, but unfortunately, as as long as these naysayers keep, keep fighting against it, um, we're really going to be, and I mean, if you're, it's not even just anti hunters. We have a, a ton of people that hunt with modern stuff that just freak out at the idea that you're going to be out there wounding everything, you know, with an atlatl. And as we talked before, like, that's really not the case. I mean, I did a podcast probably a year, year and a half ago where the guy was pretty much against the atlatl until I talked to him about it and made the same points I did with you. And he's like, I kind of don't really see that there's any problem with the atlatl now. You're kind of right. I, and I'll say to all those people, just hunt your way. I mean, <laughs> yeah, there's no, there's no right way, wrong way. Um, Everyone knows what's ethical. We're not. This isn't a discussion on ethics. You know, as a hunter, if you've put in the time and the practice to throw an atlatl, well, then that's an ethical hunt. You know, if you don't, and you just like you said, you just go get one and say, now I'm an atlatl hunter, 
Well, okay. There's a, the ethics of that would come into question, 100%. And it's the same with anything. If you picked up a compound bow and you've never shot a compound and you said, now I'm going to go shoot a white-tailed deer, I would say, this. I'm going to have to question your ethics on that. You know, you owe it to the animal to put in that practice. It's it's interesting, the mindset of, of hunters, and I, I think we all need to just get get off of our uh, – and, and it, you know, take, take uh, free range versus high fence or public land versus private land. There's there's always these points of contention within our community. I think if we just let those things go, um, we'd be, all be a lot better off because we have a common enemy, and it's not it's not each other. <laughs> That's right. And I could go off on that tangent of uh, sportsmen beating each other up all day, but let's do this. We'll reset here, take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll get into the documentary itself because it was so much more than a bison hunt. And that segment, by the way, brought to you by Lone Star Ag Credit. They've been helping their borrowers finance their own piece of paradise for over 100 years, and they will do the same for you. Land's the one thing they're not making any more of. So if you're ready to uh, take the next step, make that dream your reality, as far as land acquisition is concerned, go to LomestarAgCredit.com. We'll be right back with more from Ryan Gill of Hunt Primitive. You're listening to the Lone Star Outdoor Show. Won't be water, be fire next time, but a 40-day flood and soon me just fine. Be on the deck of an ark with a fishing line. If we're one day closer to rain. Are you tired of waking up at 2 a.m. to fight public land skybusters? Cable here for Three Crow Outfitters and their new North Texas Duck Club, which consists of over 3,000 acres and 40 water bodies throughout Ellis and Navarro counties. Three Curl does the planting, provides metal blinds, decoys, and posts a weekly scouting report. All you and your buddies do is reserve the property you want and show up to hunt. This opportunity is limited to 10 four-person memberships, so for the waterfowling experience of your lifetime, go to threecurl.com or call 214-641-8097 today. Howdy folks, I'm Lee Hoffbear for Hoffbear's Outdoor Superstore in Gulfway, Texas. I hope you're enjoying the Lone Star Outdoor Show. We've been a title sponsor for a number of years now, and we're proud to be a part of it. I'd also like to thank you for making Hoffbear's once again the number one Polaris dealer in Texas. Pike County, Illinois, and the surrounding area is hallowed ground for whitetail hunters. And with 21 years' experience, Golden Triangle Whitetails is the oldest outfitter in the state. Spread out over 14,000 acres, they have 350 acres of food plots, 500 tree stands, and over 80 box blinds. The guides take pride in having hunters harvest giant Midwest bucks. Golden Triangle Whitetail hunts the Illinois archery, shotgun, and muzzleloader season. They have a full-time chef and excellent lodging. Book your whitetail hunt of a lifetime by going to www.goldentrianglewhitetail.com today. City Nighthawk, Queso Blanco, bringing us back on the Lone Star Outdoor Show, powered by Dallas Safari Club. Cable Smith riding shotgun with you today. Thanks for being here. Thanks to Lone Star Beer and Hawk Power Polaris as well. We're about to wrap up our discussion with primitive hunter Ryan Gill concerning his recent bison hunt, uh, where he used the ancient atlatl to take down a 1,200-pound American bison. But uh, before we get back into that, I want to tell you about First Light's Sawbuck Pant. Uh, This thing is really designed with the upland hunter in mind. 
I've had the opportunity to test it out um, in both South Texas and South Africa, um, places where everything that brushes up against you can snag you, cut you, grab you, catch you. And the sawbuck was created to keep that stuff from penetrating through the pant and and also uh, from from latching onto it. I also like it because I did a lot of hiking and uh, it was hot as hell in South Texas, let me tell you. Uh, but the sawbuck, despite the heavier construction, does a great job of wicking away moisture. And that's largely in part because the entire back of the pant, as well as the areas that like to heat up, I'm talking about your butt and your crotch, let's call it spade a spade, uh, places that you're going to sweat, well, it's also got the uh, the lighter construction there. So I still stayed cool despite the warm temps. Check it out. It's the Sawbuck. You can find it at firstlight.com. First Light, go further, stay longer. Um, okay, well, let's get back into this documentary here with Ryan Gill of Hunt Primitive. And Ryan, you know, I watched the entire 47-minute thing, and um, it was a lot longer than I was expecting. I figured it was be like a you know just a, a quick five to seven minute hunt, like every other hunting video we see put out on YouTube these days. But no, this thing was captivating and uh, kept my attention for the duration. Uh, where can folks find it though? Because I want to encourage them to check it out for themselves. Uh, they can find it on my on my Hunt Primitive YouTube channel. Mm-hmm. And, and I mean, really, you can find all kinds of stuff. I got a lot of different data published published about it, whether from my Hunt Primitive Instagram or Hunt Primitive slash Gills Primitive Archery on Facebook. But the Hunt Primitive YouTube is, is thus far the most popular. Well, and I was expecting like a five to 10 minute video of the hunt. This is so much more than that. It's 47 minutes long. Don't get intimidated by that because it's the hunt aspect of it is maybe five to eight minutes. Uh, the rest is like historical content, talking about the atlatl, showing you ma- um, napping these points. And then the butchering of the animal, which once again was was with actually um, I wouldn't even call them like a knife. They're just a rock that you just napped right there in the field. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we did have some some biface knives that we brought along, but we did a lot of, of flaking off of a core to use for incision blades. And uh, but yeah, I mean that that it, it is a big gamble on my part to put out a forty seven minute film because usually my my videos are you know, eight to 10 minutes long, you know, you want to have your audience, you know, retention numbers there, but this is so important. It's not just a kill. It has so much more to do with, which in the future, without a doubt, I'll end up putting out just like a little five minute or eight minute version of this to appeal to people and then hopefully send them to the big video. Uh, but I built this with the mindset of it's not a video that I necessarily want people to watch on their phones. I know a lot of people will, this is something that I want people to sit down and watch as a documentary in the evening, you know, sit in front of their smart TV or their Roku, put it on their, on YouTube and watch it straight from there. At the end of the day, I want this to be free to the public to see because I'm passionate about it. Um, and I want as many people to be able to see this as possible. So that's why it's on YouTube. So that's why it sounds like it's unprofessional because it's on YouTube. Oh, it's absolutely it is- not. I mean, and, and it's, it is a, complete documentary and you've got interviews with uh, professors from Texas A&M and like you said you don't have the schooling that they do but you have the experience that they don't have and that's why when you meld the two together uh, I think it's just a just a very well done presentation across the board so I encourage people to check that out I do want to talk about the the fatal blows though Um, two great shots one on each side of the bison with the atlatl how far were the, the throws 
and what kind of um, damage internally did they create on this huge 1,200-pound animal? Uh, the first throw was at just about 20 yards, uh -huh. which is really on the outskirts of where I want to throw for accuracy. Um, but, I mean, just straight center punch the heart on it at 20 yards. And, of course, like I said, that comes with a ton of practice. I, it's not something I just go throw once in a while. I mean, I do this not only for a living but passionately. Um, so, yeah, first shot was 20 yards. It penetrated through the heart. I mean, tucked right in the pocket behind the shoulder um, and went completely through the rib cage, did um, kind of glance off a rib going in, uh, and then coming out came clean and then came to rest in the opposite shoulder meat. Uh, and, and most of that too, I think is the transition between the fore shaft and the main shaft, which nobody will know what I'm talking about unless they watch the video and see, but it's actually meant to slow down the penetration so you can retain the spear to be able to use it over and over. And you just replace the stone tipped fore shaft, which is like, I don't know, they're like 16 or so inches long. Mm. Um, so that one went right through the heart. In fact, it broke the spear off right at the, uh, like spear is fine, still have it, but it broke the fore shaft off the end of the spear, which it was it was supposed to do. Then the animal ran off, and uh, as the rest of the herd left, you know we could see the blood and the snow beneath it. But you're talking, this is a big animal. Like I said, typically you shoot a deer and it's dead inside 50 yards. Uh, anybody that's actually shot a bison will tell you that they're typically on their feet for quite a while. I mean, I've seen bison shot with a rifle you know, multiple times that, that pretty much like they run around, but they stand there like they're up a long time. I'm going to tell and, you it, just to add content context to this. Uh, I have seen one bison killed. A guy shot it with a bow and it, it literally was still standing 30 minutes later and they went back and shot it four times with a rifle. So just talk about how tough they are. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and I found that to be I'll tell you, I had I struggled with that one internally. I thought it was unethical that he shot it with the bow. They went and let it lay down, and you know, 30 minutes later, it wasn't dead. And to me, that meant that he either made a poor shot or he didn't have the kinetic energy that he needed to put down a bison and, and shouldn't have been hunting. It was an older guy, so I'm thinking, you know, he was probably pulling like a 50-pound bow, and and that should have been a no-no. Yeah, but I mean, it is such a big animal too. Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely, it's big absolutely. Animal. It's it's a ton to try to leak to try to leak that out. But in seeing that and spearing that, and then the animal ran, ran off, it, it then became very weak. And you could see its legs, and you can even see it in the video. They're really kind of locked out. But it's in a really aggressive pose when you see it when I come back up again. The rest of the herd ran off. Yeah. It left it there, and it's got its kind of tail up and its head down. Like, it is not happy. But it was on its feet for four minutes. Um, and I didn't know if it was really through the heart or not, but I knew it was in the kill zone solid, you know, and yeah. I was like, I, I feel really good about that. But you know, we, we had considered just letting it go. And that's why it was actually on its feet. Well, that and it was getting weaker, probably would have got herself killed, have gone in any earlier. And probably I watched the video now and think about kind of how reckless I really was. <laughs> well, he looks um, like he looks, you know, obviously fatally wounded and he yeah. looks like he wants to try to kill you, but he just doesn't have the energy to do it. Yeah, he doesn't. That's why I felt good enough to say I'll I'll roll in and uh, throw another spear. And, mm -hmm. and it was, you know, not necessarily from the ethical side, but um, but we also wanted that more more of the penetrative data to send to the university. So if I can put two spears in it, not only is it going to bring the animal down faster, but we're going to have so much more, have twice the data that we would have had we, um, you know, just thrown the one. So. I was all for getting up close, and uh, and really, I mean, we talk about it at the very end of the video. If you kind of 
tier over top of something we were talking about. Um, he talks about it, him being maybe in 10 to 15 yards from it. And I've watched the video and I'm, I'm, I'm probably another solid 20, but I have no idea. He actually measured the first shot. The archaeologist did, but the second shot he did not. Hmm. Um, unless he hasn't, has, hasn't told me, but it was probably about 20 yards again, somewhere between 15 and 20. I wouldn't have gotten 10 yards from that animal right. after it was hurt. Um, and I put the second one right through the lungs of it, uh, and it did the same thing. It came to stop in the opposite shoulder meat. So actually, we recovered the points later on in time in opposite shoulders. Huh. And uh, and then after the second shot through the lungs, it was on its feet um, for another few minutes, went down, but was completely expired in five minutes. So with the two shots, it put it down in nine minutes total. Yeah. Yeah. which is probably really, really efficient for a bison. Well, yeah, and I would think that if you even, if, with a compound bow, that would still be good, you know? Yep. Uh, yeah, and I've, heard, I've heard from many people that when you shoot them with a bow, even if you shoot them through both lungs, you can make a perfect shot, and you're looking at 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're just that big of an animal. And, uh, you know, it's Maybe I was like, too hard on that other guy then. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, uh, probably, yeah. probably. And that's normal. But you gotta figure too, is people say, well, think of how long that animal was in, was in pain. But at the same time, these are giant animals that can inflict so much more damage on one another than we can with an arrow or a spear. Like as far as pain wise goes, like yeah. you see these animals get gored by one another that will live and survive that. And they're living basically gored for two weeks until they, you know, come back to it. I mean, animals are brutal to another, to one another. So for us to take 10 minutes to kill one is really not a big deal. You know, uh, a hunting guy, I did a South Texas nil guy hunt recently and Lindell, he, he looked at me and he told me there's no penicillin in nature. <laughs> yep. So like you said, two weeks, I mean, some of these, the, the wounds they inflict on each other, or maybe a predator gets after him or, or whatever. Yeah, it's a, it's a slow and painful death. Dive infection um, yep. makes hunters. It, it makes me feel pretty ethical at the end of the day. Um, Absolutely. We deliver a humane death 99% out of the time. Um, so he goes down, and then like we talked about, the the butchering was done with, with primitive knives and then just uh, stones that you napped right there. You guys build a fire, and... Um, it's pretty cool. You're sitting around the campfire drinking, I imagine, some kind of hooch out of what looked like a primitive. Even This is how, how far you guys took it. The hooch was in like a primitive like leather-looking bag. I don't even know what's going on there. but It was a gourd, yeah. Yeah, a gourd, okay. So yeah. when I say you guys, I mean, y'all did everything to a T as primitive as possible. And uh, it's it's really fascinating to watch. I encourage everybody to check it out. Um, let me ask you this. what uh, what What's next for you? Um, really waiting to see how this does in the grand scheme of things. Mm-hmm. So like I said, I've kind of moved on and working with some universities, which is good. That's opened a lot of doors. If you can, you know, associate yourself with academia, that gives you, you know, a little bit more viability, Absolutely. Um, yeah. which is, which is great. So, and that's a new little business avenue for me, you know, well, I'm still waiting for one of them to call me to give me some viability, but we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> got to do, do something with a stone point, I think. <laughs> But, uh, well, hey, I know where to get one now, so that's right. Yeah, yeah. Hoping, I'm hoping now, if if this does well, I want to do another big project. I don't want to divulge too much into it, but it has uh, more to do with real Pleistocene type animals than 
another quick little history lesson on that. I think that the only animals that were living uh, that are living today in North America, big game animals that were living in the ice age or the bison, which the species has evolved a little over time, but you're looking at the bison, the caribou, the musk ox, and the pronghorn antelope. Hmm. And so those are the main ones that I want to target with the atlatl in starting to recreate. And actually, next time around, if we can push this through, because this is a very expensive thing for me to put on, which is pretty much completely out of pocket. I mean, hmm. universities aren't paying for this. I'm I'm just passionate about it. It is advertisement for my business, but let's face it, this is more out of knowledge and passion than what I'm going to get paid back <laughs> in atlatl sales, which is going to be right. really small in comparison. Um but yeah, if we can if we can shove this down the road, if I can get some, uh, you know, kind of grow from this, I can get some more sales and you know maybe get my uh, my foot in the door a little bit more with universities, make a little bit more money. Then I'm hoping that we can do some some early early like fourteen thousand year um, old technology type of hunt, hmm. and uh, and actually probably make some giant waves in the archaeological community uh, we've already kind of crossed some of those bridges where we're starting to show some things that are kind of starting to blow the minds of some people that have figured they had it figured out for you know the last 50 years hmm. fascinating well if you want to give your your social media outlets um real quick and folks want to follow along or, or they want to order something that like you said you created all by hand um lots of amazing stuff on there where can they find you all right. Well, thank you. It's uh, my main website, which you can, there's a ton of information on there and products. That's huntprimitive.com. And then uh, Hunt Primitive, all one word, of course, uh, is on Instagram. And then Hunt Primitive, and it's actually Slash Kills Primitive Archery on on uh, Facebook. But if you just type in Hunt Primitive, you'll either take you to the landing page, and then you can follow it over. You'll find me. I'm not hard to find. Awesome, and then uh, Hunt Primitive on YouTube. Well, we certainly appreciate it, Ryan. I, I've Thoroughly enjoy the conversation, my friend. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Okie dokie. There he goes. Ryan Gill of Hunt Primitive. Uh, I hope you all enjoyed that. I certainly did. find that stuff so interesting. And for someone to take 10,000-year-old technology, so antiquated by today's standards, and to implement it in the harvest of his wild game is something that I'm interested in and certainly a skill set that I respect immensely. Uh, so kudos to Ryan. Uh, I look forward to seeing what he's got up his sleeve for the next time. Uh, that segment of the show, by the way, brought to you by All Seasons Feeders and Blinds. I keep telling you about the Big Chingone. Well, guess what? It's got a little brother called the Little Chingone, and it's not going to fit your whole family as far as you know squeezing five people in a deer blind. But uh, if you and a buddy or you and your son or daughter um, – you know, want to go and film a whitetail hunt, it's perfect for a couple people. Check it out. It's the Little Chingone, and you can find it, as well as the Big Chingone, right there at allseasonsfeeders.com. Unfortunately, just looking at the clock, we are, we've gone over today. Got to go. Got to get out of here. Uh, thanks to both of our guests today, Ryan Gill, as well as my sweet wife, Erin, who, who begrudgingly joined us in studio, as I knew she would. Uh, but certainly thanks to both of them. Thanks to all of our sponsors for making this show possible. Thanks to you, the listener, for being a part of the Lone Star Outdoors show. Until next time, I'm Cable Smith saying y'all have a great week in the outdoors. And the sign said bear, bait, and-
him, oh yeah, and they got everything. 